0: and welcome to the latest motorsport magazine podcast and today i'm delighted to say we have with us william's chief technical officer pat simmons as we look ahead to the 2016 formula one season pat has been with us now for several podcasts he almost qualified to be on the payroll i think pat nearest nearest damn it if you send your invoice to damien be a recommendation but it's the first time we've welcomed him to motorsports well-appointed new home in London, NW3, so a very warm welcome, Pat. Thank Thank you you very
1: much. It's uh, it's great to be back.
0: Um, Joining Pat with us on the team today, we have Mark Hughes, our Grand Prix editor, Damien Smith, Motorsport Magazine's editor, and Rob Widows. Regular listeners and watchers might be aware that Rob and I seem to have swapped seats. Um, Rob has been a valued member of the motorsport team for many years, A great contributor. If anyone hasn't yet read his Gerhard Berger feature from the March issue, go and read it now, it's a brilliant read. Um, But after hosting the podcast for a long while, Rob is now going to be focusing on other projects, including his fantastic archive of Track Talk radio interviews from the 1970s, which um, we will talk about later. But I'm delighted to say that he's with us as a panellist today, so Rob, welcome. And remember, I'm asking the questions you're answering, okay? Absolutely fine.
2: Can you, you, you sort that? Pat's yeah. on the payroll. I'm off it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you've got me, Simon Aaron, asking the questions. Off, off camera, we have Alan Hyde, one of the UK's finest motor racing commentators and also a brilliant sound engineer who cuts and pastes all this together so that our mistakes aren't obvious, hopefully. And with Ed Foster taking his fourth or fifth skiing holiday of the year, we have Jamie Howlett, who's helping us with production, corralling all the readers' questions, to which we'll come a little bit later. So. Um One name you'll notice is not on the list. He doesn't leave much of a physical void because he's only about five foot four on tiptoe. But in terms of his contribution, his knowledge, his experience, we'll miss him enormously today, and that's Nigel Roebuck. As regular uh, magazine readers will be aware, I'm sure, Nigel was taken seriously ill very suddenly quite recently, um, But emergency surgery was successful. he's recovering very well. And he contacted me last night to issue an apology for not being here, but bearing in mind he's just had a major rebuild at Cosworth, I I think he can be excused. And he also asked me to extend his very, very warm gratitude to everybody. He's been completely overwhelmed with all the cards, messages. He's not much of a social media butterfly, but he does know that an awful lot of people have sent messages via the motorsport website, via Facebook and so on, to wish him well, and he is very grateful We look forward to having him back very soon, and he looks forward to being back very soon. On a similar note, uh, we have to pay tribute I think at this point to Nigel's very close friend, Alan Henry. Close friend to all of us around this table as well. Um, Alan passed away on March the 3rd after a long illness. And just before we start talking about F1 2016, I'd just like to do a quick lap of the table with a little reminiscence perhaps from everybody, starting with you Rob. You know, the Alan
2: Henry you knew? Oh, yeah, I adored the guy. <laughs> he was funny, bright. Above all else, though, I thought he was a fantastic journalist, a proper old-fashioned journalist. Possibly not a great writer like Nigel, but I thought that AH's journalism was the thing to aim for. He was he was a bit of a mentor for me, I must say, in, in my very early days. And we, we had similar... Um, backgrounds on newspapers and I still I still think um, old fashioned as I may be but I still think the local paper is a great place to start journalism you learn so much about digging for stuff, making sure it's accurate, all, of, all that kind of thing and I think Alan took that into motor racing and you know he was great at getting the story apart from that he was just a hell of a lot of fun to be with <laughs> so it's, it's sad yeah very sad. Damien?
3: I think the thing that I always remember about Alan is that I first met him when I was in my, my mid-twenties and I was a, a young journalist trying to make my way through and um, I didn't know anyone, they didn't know me but when he um, was introduced to me he treated me like an equal straight away which he didn't have to because I, I wasn't an equal at all and uh, I was quite daunted meeting someone like Alan Henry because I'd read his stuff for years in MN and uh, um, obviously in all the books that he wrote we had so many of the books at home um, and he was just a lovely bloke and uh, very genuine and extremely good fun company. The twinkle in the eye, um, the stories that endless stream of stories. um, And, uh, you know, he'd he'd seen so much and I always love him talking about particularly Ronnie Peterson and Nicky Louder. I think um, the stories from that era were particularly funny and introducing Nicky Louder to uh, the humour of Monty Python, which um, I think he and and, and Ronnie as well, I think they they were slightly confused by him, but um, he persevered anyway.
4: Well, yeah, Alan was um, a great company and great friend. And uh, he was um, a lovely link to um, a time when uh, the journalists and the drivers and the team owners were all, all sort of mucked in together, um, where there wasn't a big disparity in incomes, and so they were staying at the same sort of places. And um, it was a very intimate time and he, he, he used to have be rich in anecdote about that, and it was it was great to hear about that. And uh, as, as everyone said, he was just such. Lovely company and funny and just uh, a joy to be around, really.
0: And Pat?
1: Well, I I started in Formula One in 1981 and uh, both Alan and Nigel were the sort of, they were the well-established Formula One journalists then, and uh, I guess I was a bit overawed by them, but... I think both of them uh, have retained a lot of that old-fashioned journalism, and, and Alan, particularly, he had that sort of, what I think I'd describe as cynical realism. He, he didn't believe every press release that came out. He dug down to, to see what was behind it, and that's something we miss a lot these days in journalism.
0: Yeah, I think I concur with most of that. I mean, I, I first met him when I was 21, and um, my first day at Motoring News in the middle of 1982. And I remember meeting Alan on my first day and thinking, "Blimey, he's old." And I looked back and he was 34, um, so probably wasn't. But but he, I mean, as you, I mean, as you said, Damien. I mean, he just from day one, he treated me as his equal, which clearly I wasn't. Um, but I later discovered he was just comfortable with everybody. And I remember chatting in the uh, Bahrain paddock with him, and uh, one of the local guys came up and then went away. And Alan said, "Did you know who that was?" No idea and he was Crown Prince, something or other. And but Alan just had the lovely way of didn't matter where you were and he just he could deal at all levels with everybody and everyone warm everyone warm to him. And uh, you know, we we will miss him dreadfully. Absolutely. But now onto the uh, onto the future. Two thousand sixteen Formula One season. Pat Simmons, eight days of testing in Barcelona last week, week before. What do you reckon? What have you learnt? Well, what's an interesting graph? Come on, what's
1: that? <laughs> firstly, eight, eight, eight days of testing was tough. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago when we used to spend the winter probably wasting a fair bit of our time, at charging around the, the circuits trying to to learn things. Uh, and even you know, as recently as last year, twelve days of testing uh, to come down to to two thirds of that, you really start to focus your attention. So it was eight pretty tough days. Uh, I think the interesting thing about winter testing is that um, we all sort of have one eye looking over our shoulders seeing what everyone else is doing and if you think about that logically it's a very pointless thing to do because you know if, if you're out there and you're running and you're the fastest team you don't sort of say well hang on let's uh, back off for a little while and equally if you if you're the slowest team you don't work any harder because you can't work any harder in Formula One you work as hard as you damn well can but we're competitive people and we we love the spirit of competition and therefore we always want to know where we are so we spend an awful lot of time trying to analyze what's going on and believe me it's not an easy thing to do Uh, and uh, I know you you guys as as professional journalists have an even tougher time because you don't have access to the the data and the uh, the intelligence that that we have Um, and if are you about to tell us what
0: every what the, what fuel loads everyone was running? No,
1: I wouldn't <laughs> dream of doing that. But but we, we we obviously spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. So I think you know there there are lots of things going on. A uh, lot of miles covered I- in those eight days. Um, Mercedes absolutely astounding.
0: They were doing um, almost three race distances a day. Sometimes they were. That's they
1: did they did over six thousand kilometers of testing in eight days. That's why, that's w- why
2: would they do that, Pat? What, what what's well I think that
1: there there are several reasons. Um, I think Mercedes uh, aim to try and get through twenty-one races on four engines uh, which of course we're going to have to do soon anyway. Uh, this year we have the option of a fifth engine uh, because there are over twenty races so one of the things you've got to do is you've got to get a fleet leader. You, you've got to get one engine that's that's running on as long as possible under under hard conditions. Now all the engines that have been running around in the cars in the last sort of couple of weeks will now be out of the cars and they'll be on dynos trying to complete further race simulations. But I think Mercedes were really, really pushing that forward. Um, plus, of course, you know when you've got that sort of level of um, competitive advantage, then the one thing you want to make sure is you've got the reliability. And interestingly, the team that covered the second most number of kilometers was was toro rosso and of course Toro Rosso if they had won an Achilles heel last year it was reliability and had they finished all the races they they would have been in a much better position and obviously you can see that they've they've focused on that uh, with over four thousand nearly four thousand nine hundred kilometers
0: I mean having a bulletproof 2015 Ferrari engine obviously has has been a significant contributor in that
1: Yes, absolutely. But, but uh, bear in mind last year that, yes, they had the, the Renault engine and that was responsible for a number of their retirements. There were also probably more chassis-related retirements than they'd care for. And I'm sure James Key uh, has looked at that and said, right, what we've got to do, we've got to get out there and, and do miles. And then you've got a huge bunch of cars that have done the sort of 3,500, 4,000 kilometres, Williams being amongst those uh, at just under 4,000 as the the team with the third most number of kilometres on there. So there's your, there's your first sort of thing you're looking for in winter testing. There's absolutely no point in being extremely fast, leading a, a race by a lap and then retiring two-thirds of the way through. So we've got to get the reliability <coughs> done. Uh, and... My engineers know perfectly well my my four, four things that they have to concentrate on that I remind them of time and time again, that you have to do things in the right order and the first thing is safety, second thing is legality, third things is reliability and only then do you start looking at performance. So uh, you know that's why we, we get so many kilometres done. Um, and then you, you come to performance, and of course, lots of different things going on there. Uh, firstly, we've got five tyres now, uh, five, five different compounds. Uh, the ultra soft tyre, which we had a little look at in the post-season Abu Dhabi test, um, but the first time we've really exercised it, so everyone wanting to see how that got on. And I have to say, I was quite surprised by its performance. Um, Barcelona is a, a tough track. It really, you know, it, it eats into the tires, and turn three goes on and on and on, and the left front tire just sort of gasps and cries and says enough. Um, but the the ultra soft, all things considered, I thought it was quite a good tire. So there are all the things of learning about that. Looking at your, let's call it a qualifying performance, you know, your sort of low fuel performance and balance. Looking at race distances, tire degradations, and then of course trying to find the sort of sweet spot to set up and uh, uh and evaluate the new parts that you put on the car over over the winter. So, hell of a lot to do in 8 days.
0: Mark, you're a a, a professor of uh, long run analysis quite often. What um what have you made from looking at the uh, the t- in terms of the pecking order performance wise? What have you made from the tests? Well,
4: we can only go of apparent pecking order from the outside um and uh, it it looks um it looks like a mercedes ferrari and then a whole group of very closely matched cars williams among them um do you concur with that pat
1: yeah absolutely um yes i think mercedes have got a uh, they do have an advantage we I think uh, we we put error bars on our data you know with our, our sort of confidence levels and our, our error bars on Mercedes are a little bit wider than everyone else because you know, they have done some unusual things this winter but even if you took the most pessimistic view at the bottom of those error bars you still know that they're the fastest uh I agree Ferrari are close behind and then there's there's a, a bit of a gaggle um I believe that we at Williams are Third, you lead but it's a, yeah. it's a close run thing with Toro Rosso and Red Bull showing well. Force India. And Force India yeah. there as well, but uh, we can talk about that on the different tyres and the different things.
4: Yeah, so um, we now know, that, well, we think we know that we're doing the new qualifying system in Melbourne. So Q3 is eight cars, and if we have that gaggle of four, four teams, there's eight eight cars fighting for let's say four places, is it going to be better, if you're in that gaggle, is it going to be better to qualify ninth and have a f- free tyre choice? Yeah,
1: I think that's that's a, a good observation. Uh, in the past there were certain times when it was better to qualify 11th than, well certainly 10th, but let's say better than 8th or ninth. Now, that moves on a little bit because eight cars in the in Q3 and perhaps we should explain why that's better. The, the, the rules allow you if you're not in Q3 to have a free tyre choice to start the race whereas the cars that are in Q3 have to start on the tyre that actually they set their fastest lap in Q2. I know it's complicated, but (laughs) tyre rules are complicated. (laughs) Uh, Keep (laughs) up, Rob. So, (laughs) the (laughs) fundamental is... You (laughs) chose to explain (laughs) this. This is such simple, wonderful (laughs) entertainment, (laughs) isn't it? It is. It is. And for my next trick... (laughs) Pat Simmons, your specialist subject. (laughs) But but to put it simply, if you get into Q3, you don't have a free tyre choice. You have to start on your qualifying tyres. If you don't get into Q3, you can start on any of the tyres you've elected to bring to that particular Grand Prix. So well, it might
4: be a more raceable compound and also it's it's fresh, it's new, it hasn't uh, done a- their laps.
1: Absolutely, and of course now you're not sort of having to get through so many cars and and that's not a linear thing, you know, it's not like if you're mm. 11th it, it, yeah. you're 3 worse off than 8th, you are yeah. you're actually amongst, if you're 8th you're amongst people who are are, are good drivers, you know so you're not going to get the sort of silly accidents happening so again. how
4: do you go about qualifying ninth? you can't <laughs> <laughs> we we We
1: try all sorts of things, but I don't think any of us are good enough to try and position our car ninth is is seventh better than ninth uh to be honest, until we've done a few races until we've really seen uh how the different tires stack up uh I'm not sure um I suspect that's probably uh, mm. ninth. Ninth is better than eighth. Yeah. Seventh is probably equal to ninth. Yeah. Sixth better yeah, than yeah, ninth. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it lies in that sort of <laughs> yeah. that sort of workspace, if <laughs> you like.
3: What was the um, What was the reaction from you and your your colleagues when you um, saw the new regs and and uh, how they were being worked out? Did you groan, or did you just see it as a, a new challenge that was uh, exciting for you?
1: You've never heard me groan in my life. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that, uh, I think what surprised me was that quite a few people have misunderstood the reason behind them. Uh, and I, I was quite surprised talking to a number of people who said, well, why are we messing around with qualifying? There's nothing wrong with qualifying. And that's quite true. But the reason to change the qualifying procedure was not to improve qualifying, it was to improve the race. And I think everyone accepts that the problem that we have at, one of the problems we have at the moment is that any system that puts the fastest car at the front is not going to give you the best racing and we've had our best races when cars have been displaced from their, their natural position this new qualifying procedure is quite a it's a difficult one to handle believe me um, yeah, the old the old procedure had us, yeah, that was a, an hour of really intense work for everyone on the pit wall. It was it was tough. This one is much tougher. And we will all, from time to time, make mistakes. We will all, from time to time, get caught out by unexpected things. You now, a bit of traffic, uh, a yellow flag, a red flag, which is going to be a very interesting situation now. Um, and the, the net result will be that on Sunday, we should see... A few races, I don't know how many, but we'll see a few races where there are people out of their natural position. And I think that will lead to better racing.
0: Just as a matter of I mean, the the qualifying thing has provoked quite an interesting reaction around social media and stuff. I mean, if you had a that's just everyone around the table, I mean, I used to quite like... The tension that used to build when we had four sets of new tyres for the one hour on the Saturday, and you know you'd get built and everyone would trip over each other with all 26 cars on the track. I used to quite enjoy that. But I mean, if you had a, it's your call. How would you like to see qualifying run, and how would anyone around here like to see the qualifying system run? Do you do you do you have a perfect favoured solution?
3: Um, I'm a, I, I just struggle a little bit in Formula One to have um, anything that's seen as artificial. So I'd, I'm a little bit old school in the, in, 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 in qualifying terms. So I know it's it doesn't lead to better races, but I don't know Formula One's supposed to be a, a genuine meritocracy, isn't it?
4: I'd, I'd actually g- be interested to, to see qualifying decoupled from grid places, so that you had a competition to see who was Good the faster. fastest of one lap, which you would have to award points for, otherwise there'd be no point in doing it. Um, but that not determining the grid and have some other method of determining the grid. But um, I suggested it in a column recently, and the responses were uh, generally unfavourable. People didn't to. Outrage, know. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah.
1: But, but don't you think that a lot of people in Formula 1 fans and, and people involved alike are actually quite traditional? Because I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with you, Mark. I, I really do think that's the, uh, a very good thing to do. Uh, I do think that qualifying is is quite interesting to to really put the cars on the limit for one lap, and that's a, a good thing to see. And you know, there should be the meritocracy rewarded that comes with that. But it does destroy the racing. Uh, and the the trouble is, you know, I think that everyone is reluctant to accept change. It's it's natural, mm-hmm. and I, and I can think back. You know, I said I never moaned, but course I moan Uh, and going back over the years when you know Max Mosley imposed some very unilateral changes to the rules which at the time I didn't think were the right thing I was wrong he was right you know the fact is a lot of things have got a lot better cracky do you remember when we used to do a warm-up on Sunday morning what a waste of time that was (laughs) you know uh, but when it when it was taken away we all said oh god the cars are going to break down in the race and everything
4: reliably improved
1: yeah, it did. It did. Park Ferme has made reliability improve. The, the great thing in Formula One is that we, we work towards the rules that we've got. And this is the interesting thing with reverse grids. Now, I know you say they may be a step beyond and what have you, but they will have what I think many people would regard as unintended consequences. The main one being that we would then have to develop our cars to run in the wake of another car. At the moment, we develop our cars aerodynamically in a wind tunnel with clean air, and we try and make the fastest car, and I've spoken about this before, I know, but, but you know, I- if you had that reverse grid, we would change the way we went about developing our cars, and overtaking would then become easier.
3: It's a very it good point.
2: To, sorry, uh, it seems to me, Pat, that um, the bottom line of this, correct me if I'm wrong, Probably am is that the sport the business has to has to get more entertaining because of the television viewing figures because of the spectator attendances and because of bringing new sponsors in so anything almost anything that makes it better entertainment more exciting would be worth considering so I think that the new system if it makes a better race I I take Damien's point about it being constructed, but if it makes a better race, that's got to be great, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, qualifying to me is the sideshow. We don't want to be working on the sideshow and then ruin the main attraction. You know, that's what it's uh, about for me.
0: I'll bring in the first of our readers' questions at this point from uh, Jay Saviano. Thank you very much to all who've submitted questions, and there are quite a lot, as you might expect with Pat. And Jay says, um, I've suggested many times in the past that the front wing should be non-contiguous, somewhat like the cars of the early 90s and existing within the dimensions of the front track, as opposed to the giant, intricate front wings of today, which are also ugly. One could go further and specify only one or two elements and only one vertical per side. Would that make any real difference of the ability of cars to follow each other?
1: Yes, I think it would. Um, The the front wings... uh, you know it's almost getting to a point where wing is um, not sure whether it's the right term to use because yes there are some aerofoil surfaces there, there are flaps on it etc, but there are an, an enormous number of vortex generators and we use those vortex generators to control a lot of the detached flow further down the car. Um, and the control of that detached flow gives us an awful lot of our performance. So if there is another car in front and it destroys the effect of those vortex generators, then we lose a lot of performance. If they weren't there, we wouldn't have the ultimate performance in the first place. You know, A, a simple front wing is not going to operate in terms of total vehicle aerodynamics, as well as the complex uh, devices we have now. I mean, that's obvious. We, would, we don't do them for fun, that's for sure. Uh, they're, they're far from that. So I, I think if they were simple, uh, I think that it is likely that um, things would be uh, would be better in that respect. But you can't just sort of hark back to the old days and say, oh, you know, this is the way it was. We didn't have the tools then that we have now. Uh, and now our understanding of aerodynamics is so much higher than it was you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, that I, I think that we would still be, um, we'd still, We can't uninvent. You know, once you know that there's an effect there, you try hard to reproduce it. So I'm sure that we might have a a simple wing with an incredibly complex chassis behind it or something like that.
3: But given what you were just saying, Pat, about um, you'll have to design cars to follow each other rather than in the ideal circumstances of running in free air, next year, um, all this talk at the moment about the new regulations is all about lap time and adding downforce, which surely is completely against what you've just said, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, if, if a given sort of basic configuration of car loses X percent in the wake of another car, then if the total is higher, then X is higher. So, yes, it, it, it's uh, an inescapable fact, I think.
4: Formula 1 always seems to do with this, just attacks one problem at a time rather than looking holistically at it. And it seems a lot of these... Um, new regs for 17 is a, to a, attack a problem which was perceived that the cars weren't fast enough anymore is undoing the work that you and a lot of others did in um, the, the overtaken working group. So it's, it seems to sort of attack one problem at a time.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And I guess I go back to the fact that if you drive us to solve the problem, mm-hmm. uh, and by that I mean not by writing a set of rules that you think might do something, but actually alter the fundamental sporting regulations so that in order to get the best performance for our team we have to work in these areas then I, I think you know you'll get a better job but also you know it, it's very difficult um, the the FIA work very well through the Institute on safety matters and they put research into it you know there's a lot going on with uh, head protection, cockpit forward protection, etc. cetera. Uh, we've had the sort of work on launching cars, we've had the work on wheel tethers, all that sort of stuff is done professionally by the FIA through research. The writing and imposition of regulations is not done through research. It's done through an advisory group, um, used to be known as the technical working group, now just an advisory group. That can discuss these things with the FIA, but there's no real research done. I, even the overtaking working group that you referred to was really a very, very minor effort. You know, it, it, it was it, its total output was probably the equivalent to the stuff we do in a couple of days in in, in a proper aerodynamics department. So until you uh, until you you know you had a situation where as a fully funded sport, there was a a technical organisation researching and writing the rules, then you might get a a difference.
0: (coughs) On the subject of aero, another interesting question here from Colin Staples, who points out that um, Red Bull this year has painted its car in matte paint, Um, presumably not because they can't afford the metallic option. And And he wonders, is there any aerodynamic benefit to be had from matte paint? And they're the second team to do that, aren't they?
1: The First one, of course, you know, is Williams.
0: <laughs> I'm just c- <laughs> <laughs> well done, Pat. <laughs> a good response. It's not what he asked. <coughs> um, it, but I mean, what, what 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 is the thinking behind that?
1: Uh, the the surface finish on a on a certain parts of the vehicle are are very important. Um, the requirements are different in different parts of the vehicle, but yeah, there's there's something there.
0: I, th- I think um, I think we can t- we we, we, can, we can take from that what. Um, well, we will, yeah. Um, and you also mentioned during a previous response to Mark about the, the, the halos. Um, and William Oldacre has uh, written in to ask where you stand on the halo devices, what do you think of them?
1: Uh, I support anything that improves safety. Uh, it's a very, very difficult subject. And with as with all these things, you know, if you, if you can choose your accident, you can design a car that will withstand it. Um, some people say, well, you know, the halo's only half a, a solution. It wouldn't, for example, have have maybe stopped the spring that hit Felipe in, in Hungary uh, a few years ago. Uh, maybe that's true, but it certainly will help with the, the detached wheel, the car coming over the cockpit. So uh, I applaud it, and uh, I, I have no views as to the aesthetics of it. I don't think they're particularly relevant. I actually don't think it looks bad at all it looks a bit futuristic and uh, anything that uh, saves the driver being injured or or indeed killed of course I support it.
0: Just going on to drivers where do you see the balance of power? Um, Mercedes last year Lewis was very strong for the first two thirds of the season then with the title almost in the bag he kind of nodded off a little bit. Um, Nico kind of came in and out during the first two-thirds of the season then was very strong at the end we don't know how that's going to pan out when when we get to melbourne maybe it'll be lewis fractionally ahead again but you've got two drivers like that pretty close in terms of performance but one slightly ahead of the other over two seasons there's going to come to a point surely when driver number two is going to you know become perhaps going to become a little bit demoralized just thinking back to Renault 2005-2006, you had Giancarlo Fisichella, very strong driver, brilliant on his day, good solid performer. Then you had Fernando Alonso in the other car who's brilliant on almost every lap, which I'm sure must have fried Giancarlo's head from time to time. I mean, how, when you've got two top level drivers like that, but one just fracturing your head, how do you, how do you sort of massage the the second one to keep things stable?
1: Uh, It's difficult. I'm an engineer. Engineers aren't very good with people. We don't understand the equations Spanish, that, that govern people. Um, <coughs> no, maths, not Spanish. <laughs> um, but yes, you're right. I mean, I, I can go back further than that. And I think I first saw this really when um, Michael was driving the, the, the Benetton, and how his teammates really found it difficult to understand just what he was doing. and And it could be pretty demoralizing. And equally, for the team you sort of think well cracky you know that 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 other guy's not very good look he's not he's not doing what the number one's doing the fact that he might be the second best driver in the world sort of can sometimes escape you and it is a really difficult thing it's not just the drivers you know although we we operate as a team there are two sides to the garage and there is always a little bit of um, friendly i hope rivalry Uh, within the team so it's a really difficult thing to manage because it's a difficult thing to understand looking at at what happened with Lewis and Nico last year I don't understand that, it really surprised me the way things things went. You look at testing you know uh, I got the impression maybe Nico had the upper hand in in testing but did he? I really don't know so I think that's going to be one of the fascinating stories of 2016.
0: Mark made Sebastian Vettel the driver of the year for him in his Motorsport Top 10. And I have to say, I concur with that, just in insofar as the guy who got the most out of the materials is disposable most consistently, I think last year was Vettel. How, how, did, you, how did you rate his performance? Yeah,
1: excellent. Um, I think I would probably struggle to separate him from Hamilton last year, in terms of getting the most out of the, the equipment. But, uh, yeah, you know, Vettel was there all the time. Um I I mean I've always thought he's a great driver and a good guy as well, which I like. <laughs> and um yeah, I'm 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 not gonna argue that one.
0: Go back to um a question here from Bruno Cabral. Thank you very much, Bruno. After crunching the numbers, doing all the correlation, what do you think Williams's realistic chances of winning a race in twenty sixteen are?
1: Well number crunching doesn't tell you who wins races um, because um, uh, the, the, the trouble is that y- you can assess your own performance you can assess the performance of others and therefore you can start to put likelihoods on things but if for example you look at 2014 where there were three races that were not won by Mercedes in each case it wasn't they, they were won by Red Bull and it wasn't because Red Bull outperformed them on the day, it's because Mercedes had problems. So Red Bull were in the position to to take those wins. There, there could have been three other races. It might have been another team, be it Ferrari or Williams or, or whatever. So quite quite hard to say, but I th- I think if we look at our our overall um position uh with 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 all the cars at all the time, um I think at Williams you know we we do feel we're in third place. Uh we do have a bit of a gap to Ferrari and to Mercedes. Toro Rosso and Red Bull are not far behind us. Um so in a way that that sort of suggests that the situation is very similar to 2014 2015. What I'd like to think is we've actually, as well as improving the pace of our car, because we, we are a little bit closer to, to Mercedes, I believe, than we were last year, uh, as well as improving the pace of the car, I think we've sharpened up our operations a little bit. So I hope that we'll be there to, to grab those opportunities.
0: On, a, on which note, Peter Pogan has emailed in to ask whether you'll have the same specifications of of Mercedes' power unit as the factory team from race 1 to race 21.
1: Yep, that's uh, what I believe. We certainly, we ran everything s- thus far in exactly the same formats. We've had a, a sort of schedule, that the, the engines are physically identical, but we've also had a schedule of the, the sort of duty cycle that we'll be running and we've run exactly the same as them.
0: Um, somebody called Ed, who I presume is not the one on the ski slopes, but a different Ed. Um, has written in to say, are there any circuits that have been used on the F1 calendar in the past that aren't any more that you'd like to see reinstated? And I'll I'll run that one round the whole table. All su- all suggestions welcome.
2: Osterreich Ring.
0: You mean you mean the Sorry. full you mean the full one, not the sawn off one, don't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So sadly, sadly, sadly closed. But um, yeah, I know But, but you, you, know. you could you could it pretty. You could reinstate reinstate it pretty quickly
4: old spa, but it's it's not yeah, really yeah, feasible, yeah. But yeah, I think yeah.
2: th- I think he means current contemporary circuits.
3: I think in terms of uh, yeah, realistic option. Um, I always loved going to Imola, and I always felt that was a great start oh, yeah, to the yeah, European season. Shout. It was a great. It was just so, a great weekend. Everything about it. Yeah, I loved you know, the place, the where you used to stay, and the circuit itself. The, the crowd, obviously, as well. I used to love walking around there on a Friday during practice and just just soaking it all up. It was a fantastic place
4: could put a st- Istanbul track in rural France yeah that would be good that would be good yes yeah
2: yeah about where Manicor is in fact it'd be yes it'd be perfect yes I thought the British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch was pretty good yeah of, yeah a lot of people will hate me for saying that but that's yeah, you fine. couldn't
4: put the crowd anywhere near it
1: now that no no have, I, know, uh, I know I
2: know I know but, but
1: I guess I, I'm pretty happy with where we race I, I do agree the old Easterite ring was it was a real challenge of the the ones we've raced out in the last say 30 years or something in terms of um you know the the sort of Imola thing that you mentioned I I guess Sandvort I used to enjoy going there that was always a little bit different but um I I quite like where we race these days
0: one of the things I liked about the old Oesterreich ring going back to the mid 80s when your Benetons were flying around with BMW power I could sit with my backside on the exi- top of the arm curve, the exit of the Bosch curve, and they'd be coming past at a Nancy 197 or whatever it was. It was just one of the most kind of se- biggest sensory overloads. That was fabulous. Just yeah, fabulous. it was.
1: The, 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 the 186 Benetton with uh, five bar of boost on the BMW engine, round strike It was about 1400 brakes. Yeah, isn't it? 1350. Um, it's enough. About 80% <laughs> about of the downforce we got now. Yeah, that, that caught your attention. <laughs>
2: Have you noticed how everybody's suddenly grinning <laughs> <laughs> can i uh, can I ask a quick question please um I, I don't really understand engineers <laughs> I'm better with people but um i'm I just want to know w- when you build you build the car at Grove using a huge amount of computer technology or some amazing kit, and everything looks great. Do you still get it to Barcelona on day one and think, hang on a minute, it doesn't work here on the Spanish tarmac? Does that still happen? Uh,
1: I can't pretend to say that our simulations are 100% accurate. They're, they're, they're far from it. Um, I think in on the aerodynamics, on the vehicle dynamics side, the, the way the chassis works, ignoring the tyres, the way the chassis works, I think we're very very close to understanding what we need to understand from that. Aerodynamically there are a few areas that can cause us headaches. Um, there are some areas that are quite critical and we can get them slightly wrong in simulation and have an effect but the thing that I think we, we all find quite difficult is tyres. Um, you know they, they, they really are critical to use. They're, they're not easy to understand. They're not easy to model. Um, we get better year on year, but uh, I, I think you know our, our confidence level in our, our total simulation it isn't. It sits up in the ninety percent, uh, you know, mid mid ninety percent and most things. But it's it's not a hundred percent. That's for sure.
4: On that subject, Pat, what um what did you learn at Barcelona about the behaviour of the the new spec of Pirelli with the the underlayer. What what effect is that going to have? What well are the implications th- on that?
1: That's really interesting. I Had a meeting with Pirelli yesterday actually, and uh, I was saying to them, we just simply cannot detect it. We we if 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 they hadn't told us it was there, we wouldn't know, because we've run down, uh, and this underlayer is meant to come in at sort of you know seventy to eighty percent wear. We've run below that with no detectable cliff
4: we we've got <laughs> linear degradation so it degradation. still continues to deg absolutely yeah but not at a different rate
1: no no and that's on a a cold track you know whereas uh, we thought that uh, we might see it quite severely there but mm. um absolutely not done what we we thought it might do can
4: a driver do a stint flat out without I- inducing no. too much deg no no no
1: we still we still have this uh, this problem not being able to push the tires as much as we'd probably
3: like. So, other than the fact you got more choice this year, um, it's going to be the same story, basically. I think so.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, unless things change significantly when we get onto a, a hotter track, which I don't believe they will. Um, yeah, it's it's just down to the the tire choice and the fact that teams may have made different tire choices.
4: Uh, this idea that um, you can differentiate. the Higher choice, even within the team. How would you go about that? What would be the program if the choice between two of those three are close? How would you go about? F- would would you actually put one driver on a different program and keep them on that, or would would you analyze it after Friday? How would it at work? The, at the
1: moment, that, that's not the way we've we've approached things. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll see today when Pirelli. Uh, announce the choices for Australia, which which are due out today. We'll see how other teams have have handled it. Um, We have, on some of our choices, we have not allocated exactly the same for both drivers, but that's due to sort of reasons of things we want to do during the practice sessions. Uh, I still think that fundamentally if you've got two drivers who are of similar performance, who have the car set up in a similar way, who are likely to qualify in a similar position, um, then the chances are that there is one unique strategy which should be employed and that would require the same tyres for for both drivers. But uh, let's see as we go on because I think we've got a little bit to learn there.
0: Changing the subject slightly, one team we haven't mentioned so far, McLaren-Honda. Did you see significant signs of progress? They certainly seem to have more reliability during the tests, did you see much performance progress?
1: Yeah, they had a, uh, certainly had a lot more reliability. Um, they did 3,300 kilometres in, in testing, which is a…
0: About the same as they did last season.
1: <laughs> Probably you know it's it's within five hundred of the sort of you know that that big bunch at the at the, the sort of three eight mark uh in terms of performance um we have them still about a couple of seconds off the the mercedes, so still something to do there, but they did seem to have much better straight line speed, so I suspect that their uh energy release Problems from last year—they've they, got round a little bit, but uh, still, still some work to do. At the moment, we see them actually behind uh, behind Renault, and then a, a good step behind the sort of the Force India, Red Bull, uh, Toro Rosso, Williams bunch.
0: Chip, with all due respect to Williams, do you think there's a, an argument to be made that, for the, that in terms of performance per penny, Force India actually does a better job than anyone at the moment?
1: Um. I'm not sure how much their their budget changes, but uh, they, certainly they just seem the very very
0: solid for a team that's yeah, the end had of financial financial problems. At the end of last year,
1: they, they I think they were exceptional, and they've started this year well.
0: Good. Um, this is probably a question for your graphic design team rather than you uh, as an engineer, Pat. But Anthony, <coughs> Anthony Jenkins has said that the Williams is by far the prettiest car in the pit lane. Ruined by the piddly little numbers on the sides. Why don't you put big numbers on, like the Saubers do, to help the spectators?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'll pass that over to graphics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, it's been a bit of a bone in contention, hasn't it? Um, And I think it was one of the reasons why they they had this strange rule that you can't change your helmet design, was to, to help spectators. But I don't know how big the numbers
2: really have to be before you can... Really tell?
1: Uh, I'm I'm not sure.
2: I think you, the, you uh, should say there's a technical reason, but you can't tell us <laughs> what it is. <laughs> it's the, To do with map paint?
3: I, I guess next year with the head protection, whichever model of head protection we end up with, I mean, in terms of just working out who's who is going to be, become harder, isn't it? Because you, well, you unless you have
0: colour coded head protection like they have the colour coded TV camera yeah. shrouds, which they, which, which, would, which they would do need do do something help. to help. Yeah. I think
1: certainly. Do you think many people know that the TV shrouds are colour coded.
0: I know people who've worked in the press room for a very long time who took a, who, didn't, who, who hadn't noticed it, but I won't name names. I would have they're, thought they're, not, they're not sitting
2: around this table. The head protection is a further chance for a sponsor, isn't it?
3: Does it, actually, the head it, does it, does it have any uh, um, big aerodynamic uh, effect being uh, over the cockpit? Like that? I,
1: I, ha- I have to say we haven't,
3: uh, we haven't run it on a model yet. It, it's
1: going to be a prescribed uh, device so we can't spend ages developing the, the aerodynamics of it but uh, we we haven't yet run it on a model in the tunnel w-
3: what do we think of um lewis's idea that um it should be up to the driver to choose
4: whether he has it or not is that is that completely out well then everybody wouldn't choose it even though they would <laughs> want to choose it they couldn't afford to choose it could they uh, that's where that leads isn't it so it's not workable <laughs> <but> <laughs>
1: Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you know uh, what? Seatbelts as well, hands device, uh, helmets. Absolutely crazy.
0: Pat we've got a, a new team for the first time in four or five seasons. Um although Mana Marusha MRT has been recycled several times. But what have you made of what you've seen of um Haas so far?
1: Yeah, they uh certainly a great start, wasn't it? Uh, and the beginning of testing you thought, wow yeah, they they're they're on top of it, but then the reality comes home, off. doesn't <laughs> it? And uh, yeah, I think the 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 last four days were quite traumatic for them. Um, what did they end up doing? Only two thousand two hundred kilometres, so you know, less than than any other team. Uh, so I, I suspect there's a long, hard road in front of them. Uh, in terms of competitiveness, they look to be uh, a good step in front of Manor, but uh, but behind everyone else
0: also need to ask you about your old team, Benetton-Renault, Tolman, Lotus-Renault. Um,
1: you wouldn't the, want that on your business card, <laughs> would not you? Not really, no. <laughs> um,
0: team Enstone. Um, the car seemed to run pretty well whenever Kevin Magnussen was in the car, when it was in it. Um, and then every time Jolien got in it, something seemed to go wrong. I just wondered, what, what. what did you assess watching them?
1: Well, I don't think a driver can make a car go wrong. No, you know, no, the 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 cars are so sophisticated these days. You, you can't break them in the way you used to in the with the old cars. So I think just, that was probably just uh, tough luck for for Palmer. Um, they're sitting sort of midfield. They've got a, a fair bit of work to do, um, but they've got a lot of money. They're starting to suck people out of the other teams. Um, got Bob Bell who you know we all know is a, a good guy for getting these things together um i think that this season will be tough for them uh, and you know they need more people they, the, the the place was bled dry over the last few few years and you know, you, you you don't sort of uh, approach an engineer these days and say, come and work for me next week. You're talking six months, a year, two years ahead, depending on contracts and things. So it'll take a little while to get them, themselves established. But from what I hear, there's a very good budget there. So ultimately, why not?
0: And they've got Mario Illion lurking with his engine mods to be introduced down the road.
1: To be honest, I know nothing of that. So uh, only what I read.
0: Interesting question comes in from uh, Bill King Keller. So you've got a clean sheet. You're you're in complete control of Formula One. What would the tracks look like?
1: (laughs) Gosh, that's a that's a left field one. Mm. Uh, Complete control of Formula One. What do the tracks (laughs) look like? Gosh.
0: You thought I was going to ask you you about the cars, didn't you? You're
1: not old (laughs) enough yet. Do you think anyone would ever be in complete control of Formula One? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I. I know that uh, a lot of people do criticize Tilki uh, and I think there was a stage when a lot of his tracks were a, a little bit similar but you know when you, you look at some of the, the tracks you mentioned Turkey a minute ago you know, turn eight at Turkey was a fabulous corner uh, absolutely one of the best that we 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 raced on I think the Circuit of Americas is a great track um Answer to your question: The things I like, I like high-speed corners. I like high-speed change of direction. I like corners where the radius decreases; they tighten up on you. They're, they're difficult. Um, you know, a, a corner that, that that widens out as you go through it is an awful lot easier. So uh, those are sort of things I'd look at. But boy, I'm far from being an expert on circuit design. And
0: talking of high-speed corners. Uh, Lorenzo from Melbourne has uh, written in to say, when he's trackside at the first race in 2017, will he notice the difference? In, the term, in terms of the cars being five seconds a lot quicker, will it be visibly different?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, if he's trackside in 2016, during P2, when we all go out and we run our, our new tyres uh, two of our new tyres on relatively low fuel then we put about we slow the cars down by about four four and a half seconds by putting fuel in does he notice anything then I suspect not I can't so I don't think that lap time is something that is visible in, indeed it's almost it's often the opposite you know a car going quite slowly in the wet where it's sliding around and uh, the guy's controlling it that's that's the sort of thing you notice a, a car that's really nicely balanced and uh, uh, can just sort of slingshot through a corner. Isn't something that's spectacular, and it isn't something that people trackside really see. I don't think.
3: Did they sound particularly different in Barcelona to you?
1: No, they didn't. <laughs> in spite of what I'd said uh, about the measurements that we Mercedes had taken, uh, I, it, it was interesting. In the first test, of course, we had a a 2015 Sauber there, so you you got that um, uh, that sort of control to to, to uh, rank things against, and I, I I didn't go out trackside, I was in the pits all the time and most of the time in the garage, but uh, I didn't sort of suddenly think, oh, that's a sour going down there, that's a lot quieter or anything like that, so I can't say
3: I really noticed it, but mm. um, we'll see. Just in terms of Melbourne, um, a lot of people have been talking about Toro Rosso as a potential uh, um, even a podium if if, if there's reliability, reliability problems with the Ferraris and the Mercs. Um do you see And the Williams and the Williams, yeah. I mean, I was gonna say do you think <laughs> it's gonna be Williams versus Toro Rosso at least for maybe fifth and sixth or better, depending on what happens? Uh I think Toro Rosso
1: very strong. Yeah. Uh, I think you know they, they they were strong last year. It was a damn good car. They've moved up again. Um that Ferrari engine is a, a good help to them. Uh I think they're gonna be fighting yeah
3: and their drivers as well i mean I mean, those two two young guys they've they great performers last year
1: yeah absolutely and you know <laughs> your second year as a driver has uh, got to be good hasn't it you know you you, you go there with that confidence and knowing the circuits and sort of being an old hand in your your second year and uh, that's got to count for something
0: talking of young drivers three newcomers on the grid this year joe palmer rio Harianto, pascal Verline. Did you did you get much chance to assess any of them during tests, and what do you think? Uh,
1: no, I didn't. I I, um, I suppose selfishly, I concentrate my nineteen-hour days on things that are going wrong. And in on the that. Matt White Williams. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So as to it, I haven't really uh, looked at what they're doing. I, I know that uh, within the Mercedes team, Verline has a a lot of following. A lot of people think he he's the real deal. But um, no, that, that's not been on my radar.
3: Drivers these days have such long careers. If you, you know, you look at someone like Felipe, for example. I mean, his career is almost double the length of someone like Jackie Stewart um, in terms of how long he's been going on. What's it like working with someone who's been around that long? Is there are there pros and cons to having having someone of that experience? Maybe
1: you should ask them. I've been around a long while. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Um,
1: you know over the last few years i've actually been up sort of both ends of the spectrum with uh, my time at marussia with you know some new guys coming in where you sort of you do suddenly realize they don't know a lot of the things that I'd taken for granted for many years uh at williams of course we have both or have had both i think valtteri now is absolutely settled in but you know it, it, I I always regarded 2014 as Valtteri's rookie year because 2013 was, was such a difficult year for him uh, and you do see that improvement whereas with, with Felipe you know you you got a more steady thing but all of us you know this is my 40th year in motorsport I'm still learning all the time um, I think the drivers are, are the same there's always something new to, to learn
0: you said <coughs> I'll just interrupt you for me, um, you mentioned that when you were at Manor the young drivers coming in didn't seem to know very much, do you think that's partly a function of the fact that everything below Formula One now is, or almost everything below Formula One now is one make?
1: Yeah, a- a- absolutely, I, I think that's, that's very true. Formula One, yeah, apart from the fact the budgets are, are outstanding, but the whole technology I- I- is just, it's on a completely different plane to any other formula, a- any other single seater formula. Um, and and that does make a difference. Now it's not like it, when I started you know, Formula 3, Formula 2, they were quite technical um, series f- relative to Formula 1. You know, nothing was particularly technical in those days, but the difference between a Formula 2 car and a Formula 1 in the uh, late 70s, early 80s was, was very little. Uh, these days, you know, a, a GP2 car there's very little you can do with it, you, you don't develop it, you, you have limited data acquisition on it. Formula One, you know, these huge teams, these five, six, seven hundred people all working towards a, a very, very technical exercise. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really different way for drivers to go about things.
2: But I wanted to know why is it that um, the weekend in in Melbourne is hardly ever anything of a guide to the rest of the year there are always lots of accidents and you you can't come away from it thinking well, you know this is where we're going forward can you why is that no you can't
1: uh, I mean statistically you should never take a sample of one as being uh, anything that can establish a trend anyway but I think particularly you know we, we spend all winter driving around with the drivers sort of trying to keep out of each other's way, so they can understand their car set their lap times all this sort of stuff we spend ages sort of while we're sitting there with all our, our GPS based maps and we're telling the, the, the pit crew right let the driver out now so he's in clear traffic and everything while we're testing then they go to the uh, the first event and of course there are lots of other cars around uh, and they tend to drive into each other and things like that so a little bit of spatial awareness is is, uh, training is needed I think in that first race so you do get more accidents there. It is a I wouldn't say it's a unique circuit, but it's a circuit that it, it certainly isn't like Barcelona, where we do our testing. It's not like the classic uh, types of circuit that we we go to a bit uh, later in the in the season. So it's a, it is a little bit different. And you're right, it does. Um, although I think the right man generally wins. It doesn't show the the complete uh, uh, pace through the field.
0: This is possibly. Pat, the most technical question we've ever had emailed to us. I'm
1: going to struggle with
0: <clears throat> Oh, I don't know. It's, uh, I think we'll, we'll struggle. Uh, uh, from Peter bukov who says, what is the purpose of diffuser strikes? Are they vortex generators or channel subdivisions? How does a vortex reduce the effective angle of attack on the diffuser ramp? Well, can, you, can, <laughs> can you do that in layman's okay. terms in about 10 right, seconds, can I please? can pass that one over? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they they they're,
1: they're not really vortex generators. They they are to um, they are to direct flow. There's there's quite a strong cross flow uh, at the rear of a car, if you can imagine. Right behind the tire, you've got a very low pressure area. Uh, you're trying to feed air through the diffuser. It wants to get out to that low pressure area. You want it to get there eventually, but you want it to to do it in a controlled manner. So the strakes uh, assist that.
0: Okay, we're, we're coming towards, an, uh, towards the end of the show now and I'd just like to get around the table. We know what we think, we know what Pat thinks is going to happen in 2016. What would be a, an ideal 2016 for you guys? Starting with you, Rob, what would you like to see this year?
2: Okay, well, I'd love to see Williams win a race, not just because Pat is sitting opposite me, but I would love to see that, having been sort of friends with them for many decades. And also, I'd like to see a different team and a different driver win the World Championship not Mercedes or Hamilton
3: I don't care who wins um, but I'd like to see four or five teams win races and have a, a championship battle that goes uh, a bit further this time um, and um, I think given the qualifying we have whether we like it or not there does seem to be a potential there for some uh, some interesting outcomes uh, to, to races and um, I just hope we get some good racing basically.
4: Yeah, here I'd, 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 uh, Concur with you. I mean, I don't care who wins um, as long as it's the um, the, the, the merit based, the, the right person wins, with the right team, the right driver team combination. Um, it would be fantastic if that were less one sided than it's been the last two seasons. Um, I think there's some hope there. Uh, let, let, let's see. Um, but, but yeah, I'm looking forward to some uh, exciting racing. I think there will be, um, especially in that midfield thing we're talking about a little bit earlier, not the midfield but the 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 cut off area of Q2 Q3 uh, th- that seems set to be mixed up um and i hope this new qualifying system does um result in some um you know m- mixed up grids that that will uh, improve the racing
0: and pat
1: uh, yeah i don't care who wings, wins whether it's Valtteri or Felipe um, <laughs> I'd love to to see a Williams win. Uh, I would like to see unexpected outcomes. Uh, I think that's probably the the most important thing. Um, I hope we continue to enjoy our racing.
0: Well, knowing the kind of level of enthusiasm around the table, I'm sure we'll, we'll all continue to do that. So, signing off, thank you very, very much indeed, Pat, for joining us yet again. Thanks to all the rest of you for your contributions. Wishing everybody a great 2016 season. Wishing Nigel Roebuck a continued speedy recovery. We look forward to seeing you next time.
3: Don't forget that over the past six months, motorsport has been delving into an audio archive. Back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Rob Widow's recorded a radio show called Track Talk on Radio Victory.
1: He interviewed the likes of Bernie Eccleston, Nelson Piquet, Derek Bell, John Surtees, Sterling Moss, and even Motorsport's Dennis Jenkinson. We've digitised all of the track talk tapes, and these are available through shop.motorsportsmagazine.com. I can't recommend these highly enough. They're amazing windows into the past for only £1.99 per download.